Now, our scripture selection today is Psalm 119, starting at verse 137. 119, and we'll read verses 137 to 144. The theme of this paragraph of prayers is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. That leads us to consider what true righteousness is and what fake or phony righteousness is. There must be different kinds if God has true righteousness. Verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. You have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. My zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. Your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Please pray with me. Father, we do want to know what true righteousness is. We pray that you'll show us, you'll give us a greater understanding of what true righteousness is, and that it would build us up, that it would give us zeal, that zeal that would consume us and behave in the way in which Jesus behaved when he was consumed by your righteousness and also when he saw the wickedness going on around him. We pray, Father, that we will indeed be more like Christ and the righteousness of Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. In our society, in the last few days, there have been a few major incidents that have occurred that bring to the forefront the, the fact that righteousness and justice lacks in our land. There is actually a travesty of justice that is in our land. Several days ago, there was a soldier who was tried and he was exonerated. This soldier on the battlefield deserted the U.S. military and went to the enemy side. And when he went to the enemy side, it cost the lives of several of his fellow soldiers. Yet he was exonerated and he was not guilty of treason. His last name, Bergdahl, a soldier. A few days ago, there was another case. There was a case in California, in San Francisco. A young woman was murdered a couple of years ago named Katie uh, Steinle. Katie Steinle. She was murdered by an illegal alien. And he was a felonious alien. That is, he committed, committed felonies several times. And he was even deported a few times. But he came back into the country and he murdered this young woman. Yet, the jury, and the jury made up of common people, the jury said, he's not guilty. They exonerated him too. No justice there. And also, in high places in our government, Michael Flynn. Michael Flynn, earlier in this year, he was forced to resign from his position, a high position in national security, based on false charges. And recently, the superficial and rogue special counsel, Robert Mueller, he has indicted him for making false statements to the FBI. 
He did not do anything illegal. He did not do anything wrong. He was confused when the FBI was asking him questions. He did not deliberately lie to them. And yet he is indicted. His finances are drained. His family is under intense pressure. And he is trying to spare his own son from being tormented and interrogated by the authorities. He's a broken man. Even though he's a general, he's a, a, a hero, he's been on the battlefield for many decades, he's been doing this for this nation. And yet, there's no justice. There's no righteousness. Nobody is acting in accordance with the facts and with the law. The law of the land and the law of God. This is showing how rare, how meager it is to find true righteousness. The reason is, people are dependent on their own righteousness. They think that they are magnanimous people, and they think that whatever they want to pursue, whatever is good in their own eyes, whatever is right in their own eyes, that's what they will do, and they will be okay between themselves and God. They think everything will be just fine on the Day of Judgment, if there is a Day of Judgment for them. They think everything will be just fine. They will go to heaven. Based on their own imaginations, based on their own righteousness, based on their own deeds, because they justify what they do in their own eyes. Not in the eyes of the Bible, not in the eyes of God through Jesus Christ, but in their own eyes. This is the problem we all face. We had this kind of mentality even before we were Christians. And we still have to fight this mentality while we're Christians. We had this mentality that we were just fine. We weren't so bad of people. We didn't massacre millions of people. We didn't do anything like that. Therefore, we were just fine. We don't need a savior. We don't need to repent of any sin. We're, we're okay people. We're civil people. We go to our, our jobs and we do whatever we're told to do. We're okay. And we don't need God, or we don't need Christ to pay the penalty for our sins. We don't need anybody to tell us we're sinners, and we practice wickedness contrary to the law of God. Therefore, we need Christ's righteousness. That's the way we were before Christ, until Christ, by His Spirit, changed our hearts and showed us, no, we could not depend on our own righteousness. We recognize that we're all under sin, that there is none righteous, no, not one. We recognize that before our conversion. And upon our conversion. And then God showed us that we needed Jesus. His perfection. His complete holiness. His righteousness. God showed us that he made him who knew no sin. To become the sin offering on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Christ. That's what God showed us. And that's what we have now. That's what we own now. And that's what we desire now. The true believer desires the righteousness of God to fill him and to conform him and to make him more and more like Jesus Christ. However, even as Christians, we have our old nature, the flesh. And often, every day, every day, throughout the day, our old nature rises up against our new nature. It rises up against the wisdom of God. It rises up against the righteousness of God. And it seeks to smother it. It seeks to destroy it. It seeks to have nothing to do with the righteousness of God. This is the battle that we face every day. And every moment of the day. It's very easy because the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's very easy for him to pounce upon us. 
and for him to weigh us down and, and distract us and destroy us and to make us miserable and, and in our sin. He, it's very easy for him to do that. Therefore, we are called to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The righteousness, the pretended righteousness, the fake righteousness of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we need to rise up and be brave soldiers for Christ, fight the good fight of faith, and understand what true righteousness is. True righteousness is the problem of today. And in fact, when churches are preaching true righteousness, what happens? When churches preach true righteousness, then the people who hear about that start to scatter. They start to wander. They start to be absent. They don't show up. They go to another church when true righteousness is preached because they don't want it. I like to say that if Jesus were here today, the people who commonly say that they are Christians in small and big churches, especially big churches, the people who say that they are Christians, they would actually want Jesus crucified. They would spit in his face. They would punch him in the face. They would take an object. They would throw up, pick up rocks. They would throw at him. And they would shout with the authorities, crucify him, crucify him. It is the Jesus they hate because it is the Jesus who taught righteousness, who preached righteousness. He said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, which means we have to give up any notion of righteousness we have within ourselves. And we have to seek for that righteousness that is described in the Bible, in the Word of God. Seek for what's in the Bible and the righteousness of God that way and conform ourselves to that life. Let's see how David, the man of God, the true believer, the one who has a changed heart, how he longs for that. He wants that true righteousness, not a fake and phony righteousness. Verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Immediately, he says that God is righteous. I acknowledge that he is righteous, and then whatever he does, upright are your judgments. He is righteous, and whatever proceeds from him is righteousness. This is what the apostle was saying in Romans chapter 3. God's righteousness demonstrates our unrighteousness. There is value in meditating and musing upon the righteousness of God. When we know who God is, then it exposes us for who we are. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. We know that because from our conversion, we know that we needed Him. We needed Him to save us. We needed Him to deliver us from our own wickedness and the punishment for our own wickedness. To recover righteousness, therefore, and to maintain it, we always have to have front and center the righteousness of God. Believe and know that He is righteous. And whatever he does, whatever his judgments, whatever he declares to be right and true in this or that matter, whatever the issue is, everything that the Bible touches, let God be found true, though every man a liar. Let his judgments be considered upright, correct, true, faithful, holy, and pure. That's what David declares. God is righteous, and whatever he says, whatever he does about any and everything is righteous. And the implication is, any defection from that 
is wickedness. Even a minor defection in our human understanding we might call a minor defection like Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. What did they do? They were given blessings. They were given munificent blessings throughout the Garden of Eden. More than they could handle. And yet, they were tempted by the devil. And sin arose within them with this temptation to go partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They partook of it. We would say today, well, all they did was take from a tree and ate from the tree. What did they do? It wasn't like they committed adultery with a thousand people. It wasn't as though they murdered a million people. They didn't do anything like that. Those would be the sins of today that we would say, oh man, that, that person is wicked. No, all that they did was that one minor defection. Minor in our own understanding. But not minor when we compare it to the righteousness of God. Not minor when we compare it to the character of God. And the word of God that was announced to them, his judgment on that issue was, it's good for you to partake graciously and freely of all of this abundance. Just restrict yourselves from this one tree. That was his judgment on that matter. And his judgment was, in terms of condemnation, if you partake of that one, you shall surely die. Because they defected in that one point, it brought sin, evil, death, and misery to the whole world. This shows us, just like James says, he who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. That means we have to be fixated on the righteousness of God revealed in the Word of God and never seek to defect ourselves from it. Never stray from the path. Focus on who God is. Verse 138. You have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. He repeats and emphasizes what he says in the second part of the previous verse. You have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. God is righteous and faithful, and when he commands, it should be something we do. He is exceedingly faithful, and he is righteous in everything he does. So when he commands it, we ought to say, that's right, that's good. When you say it, it must be true, and I will do it. This was the command that Adam and Eve rejected. This was the command that Adam and Eve disobeyed. It said in Genesis 2, 15 to 17, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From every tree of the garden you may eat freely. He commanded the man, saying, It was a commandment, the first commandment. One simple commandment with two parts and with consequences for disobedience. That's all it was. And here too, Whatever he says, whatever comes out of his mouth is a commandment that is righteous and exceedingly faithful. You see, the problem we face is that we do two things. We will mitigate and minimize his commandment. And we'll say the commandment is not a commandment, it's a recommendation or it's a suggestion. Well, that's God's way of doing it. It's God's preference, but I have another preference. And one way or another, we mitigate and minimize this commandment so that it's not authoritative. It's not a command. It's not absolute. It's not the thing that we must obey. We rather depend on our authority rather than the authority of God in His commandment. That's one thing we do. The other thing we do 
is we consider his righteousness and faithfulness not so exceeding. Okay, yes, that method of God, okay, we can call, call it righteous, we can call it faithful, but is it really faithful? Is it really righteous? Is it exceedingly faithful and righteous? Or is it just partially faithful and righteous? Because I read this book the other day, or I saw this website the other day, and I have this friend who's been telling me, and they're telling me this other way of handling this matter, so let me pursue that. That's what goes on in our mind. We don't think that God's way is exceedingly faithful, exceedingly righteous, and therefore we ought to follow it. It's partially, a little bit, somewhat. And then we are distracted and detracted from the path of God, and then we follow whatever our mind and heart want to do. Not with David, though. David was determined to understand his righteousness and faithfulness in the right sense. They are commandments, authoritative, and they are exceedingly faithful. So much so, it produces verse 139. My zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. My zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. When he speaks here of being consumed by zeal, he means, I see what your word says, and I want to enthusiastically, I want to zealously, I want to wholeheartedly dedicate myself to do what your word says. I don't want to be distracted in any way. I want to do what your word says, and I have full conviction it is true, it is righteous, it is faithful. That's what's produced in him when he sees wickedness. Because he says in Psalm 119, Because my adversaries have forgotten your words. What arouses in him is this true godly zeal. And this is actually zealous anger. He is so consumed, and not consumed in a bad sense, but he's saying it has completely overcome him in terms of righteous indignation. My zeal has consumed me. He's not confessing sin here. He's confessing that he has zealous anger that has completely taken over him, uh, uh, taken him uh, over in order to make a distinction between what he sees and what he knows to be true. And what he sees is wicked, what he knows to be true is God's ways and God's righteousness. The example we have of this is in John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We'll find in John 2 that Psalm 69.9 is quoted. Psalm 69.9, which is very much like our verse in Psalm 119.139. And here we find the incident that brings that passage to fruition in the life of Jesus. John chapter 2, verse 13. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. That's a quote 
from Psalm 69.9, and Psalm 69 describes Christ. Psalm 69 is one messianic psalm. It's one of the many messianic psalms. They quote it here because they know that Messiah was going to have this great zeal for the house of God. And that's when they were reminded. It says, His disciples remembered that it was written. They knew that psalm. And they saw it being fulfilled before their very eyes. By who? By the Master Himself, the perfect Master, the righteous Master, who is behaving this way. Zeal for your house will consume you. In this example, what did Jesus do? He's in the temple, and He sees that wrongdoing is happening in the temple. They are doing wrong, making God's house a house of merchandise. They're making it a commercial enterprise there in the temple. That's the problem. Because the things of God and the ways of God in the temple were being subverted by the presence of money and merchandise, exploitation of the people so that these money changers could have their wealth. That's what they were doing. When the, the house of God is a house of prayer for all the nations, Isaiah says, Isaiah 56, 7. Because it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations and not a house of merchandise, not a house where people are, are after sordid gain, it should not be for that purpose. It aroused zealous anger in Christ that consumed him. So much so that it says, verse 15, he made a scourge of cords, he made a whip. That means that he was deliberate, that this was not irrational and rash anger, but he had this zeal of God, righteous indignation. He made that scourge in order to go into that temple and use it and fling it to threaten the people and and to throw the rascals out of the temple. Not only to throw the rascals out of the temple, but it says he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. Even the animals had to run and flee. And it says he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Their vessels, their vessels where they had the money, he overturned them. And the tables, he overturned them. He poured it all out. He didn't say, gentlemen, please pick all this up and walk out of the the temple. He didn't say, let's have a meeting, you know, after worship hours, let's have a meeting and let's do this in a gentlemanly, gentlemanly way. He didn't say anything like that. He did it right there. Because the righteousness of God had taken full control of him. He saw evil and knew it should not stand. That's what David means. David, throughout his ministry he, and life, he does the same thing. He says, My zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. We also might note in Psalm 119, 139, My adversaries have forgotten your words. If they forgot the words of God, that must mean that they once knew the words of God. They just didn't remember the words of God to obey the words of God. And if that's the case, they must have been people who were associating with Him, people who were around Him, people who worshipped with Him, who heard the word of God read and explained. He's not talking about pagans, people in distant countries who never heard the Word of God. He's talking about people who heard it but forgot it and chose 
to disobey it in their forgetfulness. And they are his adversaries. Even though they claim to be the people of God, when they forget the words of God, they become his adversaries. Not his friends. Not his brothers. Verse 140. Your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. Your word is very pure. His word is not an admixture of that which is good and that which is evil. There is no mixture of anything like that. The, the word of God is 100% holy, 100% righteous, 100% pure. You cannot put it in the fire and expect any dross to melt away. You cannot do that. It's already pure, 100% pure gold, 24 karat gold in the fire, tested and smelted in the fire perfectly. That's the way the Word of God is. That's the way the Word of God was the moment it came out of His mouth. And the moment the holy prophets and apostles wrote it down. The moment that they preached it, it was already 100% pure. He has to assert this because we have difficulty. We all have difficulty. When we read the Bible, or when we hear somebody raise a question or a doubt about the Bible, immediately it shakes us. Immediately we wonder, what should I trust? Can I trust the Bible or should I trust them? Can I trust myself, my own reading of the Bible? I don't understand something. Something is complicated to me. So am I the wise one or is the Bible the wise one? Am I the pure one or is the Bible the pure one? Am I the one with the mistake or is the Bible the one with the mistake? However, the true believer, when he reads the Bible, he comes to the Bible and believes that God's words are very pure. They are very pure. So that if ever there is any doubt, if ever a skeptical thought comes to our mind, or if ever one of our friends or foes even brings up a skepticism about the Bible, what should we do? We should have the response, your words are very pure. We should have the response, let God be found true, though every man a liar. That's the response we should have. And that's why David says, when he has that belief, therefore, your servant loves it. Therefore, we have to start with the premise that the word of God is 100% pure. Then we will love it. If we have doubts, if we wonder and wander here and there about the Bible, then we won't love it. We're going to think we ourselves are ingenious. We ourselves have all the wisdom that we need. We ourselves, with a little help from a little book here or that book over there, will be just fine in life. That's what we think. If we do not believe that the Bible is 100% reliable because it's 100% purely from God. Let's start with that premise and then love the Word. We have to start with that premise. Otherwise, there will not be a true love of the Word. He calls himself God's servant or slave, more properly speaking. God's slave. He is his slave once he knows that everything that comes from the master of heaven is pure. Then he, as the slave of God, has no reason to doubt that the master's wisdom is the best wisdom. The master's words are the purest words and they are good and righteous 
for him. He doesn't have to complain. He doesn't have to put his head down and walk away and carry out his master's will with the bad attitude. Nothing like that. Therefore, your slave loves it. That should be the way we are. When we hear God's word, when we know it's pure and righteous, anything he says, we should love it because we know we belong to him and his way and his righteousness exceeds ours. 141. Not only does he consider himself the slave of God, 141, he says, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. He considers himself humble in the sight of God, but also here in verse 141, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. He is small and despised in the eyes of people. Even the people are humiliating him. The people are considering him a fool, unwise, the one that that is insane, the one who believes the word of God, the one who obeys the word of God, and now they persecute him. He has become the song of the drunkards. He's become the mockery of all the people because he lives his life one way and nobody else does. And everybody else around him says, look at that fool. Look at that man. He thinks he's better than everybody else. No, he doesn't think he's better. He knows God has made him into who he is. He does not have a superiority complex. He's already been humbled as the slave of God in verse 140. He is small and despised. So when he is persecuted, what does he do? What does he do? Does he lift up a white flag? Does he say, I give up? Does he say, uncle? What does he do? No. Yet I do not forget your precepts. For him, it doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter at all what people say. In the sight of God, what God thinks of me is the only thing that should matter to me. What people think of me should not matter in terms of how we behave, what we say, what we do. What are, how or in what ways are our behaviors going to be controlled? Is it going to be controlled by people pleasing? Or is it going to be controlled by what God says should be done in our life? For David, he says, I do not forget your precepts. I'm not going to let what they say to humiliate me, to make me small and despise, what they say to humiliate me, I'm not going to let that control me and my behavior and the way I respond to God and do God's will and even respond to them. I'm not going to forget your law. I'm not going to let their criticisms smother my love for you, Lord. I won't forget you and your word. He repeats now in 142 what he thinks of the Bible and God. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. God's righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and his law is truth. Wherein do we find the righteousness of God? How can we know on display where God's righteousness is found? Where do we see it? We see it perfectly in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He is the perfect display of that righteousness. And it says here that God's righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. The righteousness that God has 
from all eternity past and now is not a righteousness that can be undermined. It's everlasting. It's not a righteousness that is temporary. It's everlasting. And then the righteousness that He has manifested in His own Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is not a temporary righteousness. It's not a righteousness that Jesus only displayed during three and a half years of His public ministry, or even for the 30, uh, three and a half years of His life. It wasn't a temporary righteousness that was just for Him at that time. It's an everlasting righteousness. Even now, Jesus is holy, undefiled, blameless, perfect, sinless, and He's in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. So it's an everlasting righteousness that He Himself possesses. It's also everlasting for you and me. It's also everlasting for us. Because what Jesus possesses is what Jesus grants to us by faith in Him. We are reminded that whatever we do, our own righteousness is as filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6 and 7. Our righteous deeds that we might present to God, God considers those righteous deeds filthy rags. It's not our righteousness. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Titus 3, verse 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Nothing we have, nothing we can present, none of our goodness, none of our wisdom, none of our brilliance, none of our natural abilities even, and the way we use our natural abilities, which are also gifts of God, none of that that we have can be presented to God. All of that is a filthy righteousness. It's a temporary righteousness. It's a finite righteousness. None of that is based on Christ's righteousness. That's why we need Christ. We need Christ and His perfection to be reckoned to our account for us to be considered righteous in the sight of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to become the sin offering in our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We become the righteousness of God in Christ. And this is acquired. This is obtained to our account. Romans chapter 4 elaborately explains. By faith in Christ. When we believe in Christ, what all He has is reckoned to our account. So that we are justified. Our sins are washed away. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 That part, it's good and it's right. And it has its place in our Christian life. But few people understand after that point that that righteousness that was given to us at the start of our Christian life is a righteousness that needs to be manifested in our life until we meet Christ face to face. This period between conversion and consummation, the period between when we were born again until the time that we are released completely from the ravages of sin in this world to be with the Lord forever. This intermediate period is the great period of difficulty for all of us. Yet this everlasting righteousness, notice, it's everlasting fits the intermediate period. 
This intermediate period that we call our sanctification, this intermediate period that we call the period of our Christian growth, this is the period that is our focus. And But this is the period that is rejected by the average church, the nominal church. The average church despises and hates this intermediate period. The visible church, the thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands, and even millions of people who gather on Sunday mornings to worship God across various parts of Christendom, these people, they absolutely despise this middle period, the sanctification period, the intermediate period. They want nothing to do with it. They want to think that the initial righteousness that was declared to us by Christ, by faith in Christ, that that is enough, and otherwise, I am just okay. I'm, everything is fine between me and God. I'll get to heaven, even though there is no fruit, there is no transformation, no change of life from the time of that professed conversion. They think everything is okay. And so what do they do? They live wickedly. They do whatever it pleases them to do. They don't want to read the Bible. They don't want to read the Bible with their spouses. They don't want to read the Bible with their children. They don't want to have the Bible inside their minds constantly. They have no desire for these kinds of things. These are the same kinds of people who come and approach religion superficially. They come and approach the Christian religion superficially. You have masses and masses of people going to huge churches, and in those huge churches, the preachers are cracking jokes, behaving like a clown. Those preachers are dressing up in fancy ways, flexing their muscles, talking about their exploits of the previous week, giving anecdotes about what's going on here and there in life. But they're not teaching them the Bible. They're not calling the people to holiness, this everlasting righteousness. They're not doing that. They don't do that. They make the Christian religion very simple and easy. They make the Christian religion a very superficial thing. So what do the people do? What do the masses of people do? Not just in huge churches, though they are the worst culprits. Even in small churches, what do people do? They show up occasionally. They don't want to hear the Word. They have no hunger and thirst for the righteousness of the Word of Righteousness, the Word of God. They show up whenever they feel like it. They make every excuse not to show up. They don't want to know the Bible. They don't want to fellowship with the people of God. Even when they go on vacation, for example. And people do that during the Christmas uh, season. Whenever they go on vacation, what do they do? They do whatever they want to do with family or whatever. And they just abandon God. They don't show up at worship service even when they go out of, out of state. They don't seek to find a church where they can worship God for themselves to benefit and also to be a model to their family back home. Then, they also, when they go abroad, and, they do, uh, and if they were to go and worship at a church, find as, as best as they can a good church, then they can encourage the people who are there. What about that? How would it be? In our own experience, if there were people visiting churches whenever they have business or vacation or whatever, they came and came to our, uh, they would come to our church and then tell us, we just found your church this way or that way, and thank you, we love the Word of God, we love Christ, we thank you for what you're doing. 
this is what's going on in our life. What's been going on in your life and in your family? Let's pray for each other. It's good to now meet you. You, you are the kind of people we'll see in heaven. There are many things that you could do and say to encourage. But we find every excuse not to come to church. That's what happens with people who do not want true righteousness. They don't want everlasting righteousness. They want to put one foot in the door and one foot out of the door of the church. And they live their life regularly that way. And they think they are Christians. And they think they go to church. They say, if somebody asks them, are you a Christian? Do you go to church? They'll say yes and yes. But it's all superficial. It's all casual. Jesus' righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. It begins and it works its way in us progressively until we meet him face to face. The book of the Bible that is prolific in the righteousness of God is the book of Romans. The book of Romans repeats this refrain again and again and again. So in this period of sanctification, this intermediate period between our conversion and the time we meet the Lord face to face, what does the Apostle Paul call us to do? Romans 12 verse 1. I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He urges us, therefore, based on the grace of God of Romans 1, 1 to 11, based on that grace that saved us, is also the grace that sanctifies us. And he will speak of grace, for example, in Romans 12, verse 3, for through the grace given to me. And then he's speaking to the church and what we should do with this current grace that we possess in the church. And with this grace, it is also a sanctifying grace. The saving grace of God is also a sanctifying grace of God. This is why our whole beings, represented here by our bodies, they should be presented to God as a living and holy sacrifice. And in contrast, the Bible is always contrasting. Live for God, in verse 12, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't live the way you want to live. Don't live the way the people of the world live. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that we might prove the will of God. Prove it. Demonstrate it. Show forth. Show it forth. The will of God and the righteousness of God. This is what we are called to do. It is an everlasting righteousness and God's law is truth. We saw this before. That the word of God is truth. He has many ways of saying the same thing. We know that when God's law says that there should be a penalty for a certain sin, we should understand that when he says that, it's true. His laws are true. We say again, let God be found true, though every man a liar. Verse 143. 143, trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. 
Trouble and anguish have come upon me, similar to verse 141. Because he lives righteously, therefore he is persecuted. Because he lives righteously, therefore trouble and anguish come upon him. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And indeed, it's very true. Everyone who lives godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be persecuted, will be persecuted. It will happen. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And in context, tribulations includes persecutions. People will despise us. They will hate us. They will separate from us. They will slander us. They will malign us when we stand up for the truth. This is what he means by trouble and anguish have come upon me. This will happen. Why does it not happen to enough of us? Because we don't live righteously. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22 and 2 Timothy 3.12. In context, both passages have to do with persecutions and afflictions. We must consider how we live. We don't look for trouble. We're not instigators and troublemakers. We're not fault finders and gripers. That's not the way we're supposed to be. But when we live the way we should live, inevitably somebody, whether what we say or what we do, somebody will object and somebody will instigate a rebellion against us. It will happen. They will do that. That's what David means here, that these things have come upon him. But don't be discouraged. Don't Throw up your hands. Don't give up. Don't withdraw and retreat. Don't defect to the enemy's side. Don't do anything like that. Yet your commandments are my delight. I will still revel in the Word of God. I will still bask in the Word of God. The Word of God, the commandments of God, will still be my delight. Just as I love to eat certain foods, just as we love to eat sweet foods, Honey, just as we delight in those kinds of things, he says, your commandments are that way to me. What they say, I do not relish. What they say, I despise. It's distasteful to me. It's repugnant to me. I don't want anything to do with their persecutions and their ways. I will delight in the commandments of God. This is where I will revel. This is where I will be satiated. This is where I will bask. And rejoice in the word of God. 144. His closing prayer for righteousness is. Your, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Another declaration that these righteous words are forever. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. And your word is forever. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away, Jesus said. Matthew 24, 35. Therefore, if these testimonies are forever, what should our prayer be? A simple prayer. We don't have to be wordy and elaborate. 
Give me understanding that I may live. Life is found in God's righteousness. So, all we have to do is say, give me understanding. I want to understand. When I read, when I hear, when I learn of your word, I just want to understand so that I may live forever. I want to live. I don't want death. I don't want the sentence of death. I don't want death to me, to, uh, on me, eternal death. Or I don't want to die prematurely because of this or that sin that I commit. I don't want anything like that. And I make reference in allusion to 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, when the people there were approaching the Lord's table unworthily, unworthily, some of them became sick and some of them uh, were weak and some of them fell asleep. That means some of them died. These were believers who were in sin at the time they partook of the Lord's table and therefore some of them were sick and weak and some died. And the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32, uh, that if we had judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, He judges us so that we might not be condemned along with the world. He means by that, when we are worshiping God, and especially when we are partaking of the Lord's Supper, when we don't repent of our sins, when we don't confess our wickedness, when we don't delight in the Word of God and say, now I am recommitted, I am rededicated to loving you and following your Word, your righteousness, when we don't approach God in that way, then God may inflict some punishment upon us whether weakness, sickness, or death. In order that we might be an example, in order for us first to be punished, but secondly, that we might be example to others to repent of sin. That we are not, so that we're not condemned along with the world. In either case, when David says, give me understanding that I may live, we need God's understanding so that we can go from death to life, be a true believer. But we also need God's understanding to maintain our life. Otherwise, we pursue sin and we prematurely may become sick or die. Not that every time somebody experiences a premature death, a sudden death or an early death, the Bible does not teach that every time that happens, necessarily that person did something wrong just before it. No, but it could be the case. And that's where we come in. We have to consider. Examine our life. Examine the way we are. Confess our sins. And ask Christ to forgive us our sins. And He will. 1 John 1.9 1 one of the most precious verses in the Bible for the believer. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's be that way. Let's consider now, for a few moments, before we partake of the Lord's Supper, let's consider our sins, and then we will partake.